The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. And welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu and Julia Chatterley on Bloomberg Television called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we spoke with Republican Congressman Jeff Denham, who represents California's 10th congressional district in the San Joaquin Valley. Congressman Denham has been a vocal leader in the congressional push for an immigration fix. It's an issue that hits home for him, representing a district that's heavily agricultural and 40% Hispanic. Congressman Denham told us about the latest efforts happening in Capitol Hill after multiple immigration bills failed in the House. I mean, going back over 30 years now, we've uh, seen both parties, uh, different administrations try to tackle this, only to see a number of different failures. And I would say what's different about this year is, first of all, the president put an arbitrary timeline with June or uh, March 5th uh, for the Dreamers, for DACA uh, and President Obama's executive order. We blew by that. But now there are a number of court decisions. And then we did a discharge petition just to force a timeline to address this issue. Uh, But over the next two weeks, before we get a chance to take up this issue of uh, uh, kids being separated from their parents. Uh, we've got two weeks to go before we'll actually be able to get something on the president's desk for him to sign. We had it in our bill last week, um, but it was a failure. I mean, what are we looking at there? Because the president's message to the GOP was, don't bother, wait until after the midterm. So do, do we lack leadership from the president in trying to get something done, particularly in the short term here? I mean, you tried this week and failed. Yeah, there were several mixed messages, uh, I think, that came out, but certainly the president uh, supported this. Uh, This was the four pillars. I mean, this is the four pillars that he put out there. This is the four pillars that he had negotiated with Democrats in the Senate. Um, And it's much of what the Gang of Eight bill had just a few years ago. So a lot of similarities on the things that the Democrats have always supported. um, But we've got a a bigger job to do moving forward. I would say uh, one of the positive things that came out of this is we had a majority of uh, House Republicans that supported a pathway for dreamers and and automatic protection from day one. So I I felt like we did move the ball forward, but we have some timelines coming up that's going to force us to to do our job. Mm. Do you think politically that the president has now turned this from a benefit to a disadvantage for the Republican Party because he certainly got some support during the election related to immigration. But now with this issue of separating families at the border, it seems as though not only is the other side mobilized, there are going to be big protests this weekend, but you also had a number of Republicans who came out against that policy. 
Yeah, I mean, everything uh, happens in, in Washington, D.C., either with uh, a deadline or a result of a lot of pressure. And uh, I think we're going to see a lot of pressure, um, both with the policy of separating kids from their parents. Um, we're pushing to uh, get policy enacted that would actually keep family units together. Um, and then we have court decisions that are coming out in Texas and then most likely the Supreme Court dealing with, uh, with Dreamers and whether or not the DACA um, executive order that President Obama did is constitutional. So between the two of them, there's going to be a lot of pressure uh, all through the summer. Uh, ultimately, we've got to get our job done. And so I'm hopeful that we'll, uh, we'll pass a very narrow bill next week, um, actually right after uh, the 4th of July, and then come back and do a much broader bill with uh, border security and dealing with DREAMers. I want to move on and talk to you about the trade situation because we've had the Canadians responding to the steel and aluminium tariffs that the United States have already applied. Um, we heard from GM today saying, look, if we're looking at potential import tariffs on auto parts, it could ultimately cost U.S. jobs. People have already told us today that actually this is pretty unusual for a company like GM to be so vocal towards the U.S. administration. Are we worried about U.S. jobs in this situation backfiring on the United States? You know, certainly, uh, I think it's rare for GM to come out, uh, yes. just as rare for uh, Harley-Davidson uh, to come out earlier this week. Uh, there's a lot of questions and concern. Now, obviously, we've had some trade imbalances that uh, are negative for the United States, so we should be addressing those. Uh, but I'm an, I'm an almond farmer right. in California, and we export uh, uh, the greatest percentage of our crop. And so we have a lot of perishable items that have us all concerned as well. We're going to have to work this out. Are we handling it wrong right now? I wouldn't say wrong. I mean, there are definitely issues that we have to address. NAFTA needs to be fixed and improved and updated. Um, but we are taking on a lot of different countries all at the same time. Um, it would be nice to negotiate one and get it done and move on to the next one. Uh, we talked earlier to a former U.S. ambassador to Canada who was very critical of, in particular, the tone that uh, the president has taken with regards to Canada and also our other trade relationships. He also said that Republicans and corporate America are frightened of the president. They're scared of the president, and that's why they won't speak out more publicly against some of this different rhetoric, if nothing else. Do you think that's true? I think part of it is just patience. Um, I mean, I do believe that this president can negotiate well, and we are at some imbalances on, on a lot of this trade. So I think part of it is patience, but as any business owner, I mean, we all want certainty in the marketplace, and we know what we're dealing with today. Uh, we're not sure, uh, you know, what type of imbalance uh, will be created in the future or whether or not there's going to be a short-term uh, penalty that we could face uh, uh, as other countries are reacting, especially the countries that are our strong allies and partners that we do so much with. It's, it's uncomfortable sometimes. What are voters saying to you, your constituencies saying to you about the, the fears? Are they afraid of some of the headlines that they see and the, the apparent risks, or, or do they think actually that this administration is getting it right? Um, well, certainly the economy. The booming economy is uh, going well. Um, you know, there was a lot of ads that were being posted up in my district uh, about the tax cuts. People appreciate the tax cuts. Uh, a very blue-collar area that, you know, $2,000 is a lot, of, a lot of money for somebody receiving back in their paycheck. So um, from that perspective, uh, the economy, uh, I get a lot of positive responses about that. Um, but even I remember on a Friday night very vividly when the question came out about steel, um, 
people in my district didn't hear steel. They heard all of our ag commodities that we export, yes. and uh, um, automatically a lot of questions came out about that. And obviously we're talking about a lot of other countries and a lot of other items now, but there's still a lot of concern out there too. And just quickly, in your district as well, you being a farmer yourself, yes. it being a farming district, you must be hearing a lot on immigration as well because oh, absolutely. you've got workers there who are yeah. immigrants. And, what, and immigration is always the top issue. I mean, these are dreamers that go to, go to school with our kids. Uh, some of them are family members. Members to to some of us, um, you know, dealing with a, a ag uh, shortage of labor. I mean, you start shutting down our agriculture industry, it affects our entire economy too. That only uh, one issue that's even close to that it would be water. If you shut off our water, um, as you've seen, we've had devastating uh, crop loss because of water shortages. Yeah. How concerned are you that the House flips in the midterms, that it goes to the Democrats here? in light of all the issues that we've just been talking about. And as you've said, taking on too many countries, impacting certain areas of the United States that are very sensitive, perhaps accidentally. Yeah, I, I would say right now things are going very, very well for us. Uh, as long as we continue to accomplish, you're elected to lead. And uh, I would expect us to get some more accomplishments between now and the November election. I would say one thing that's different about today's politics is uh, the issues change daily, sometimes quicker than daily, where, you know, we used to deal with news cycles that you'd be talking about the same issue for months. So it makes so, it more difficult to predict. Yes, it's hard to predict right now. We also got a recap of the Mexican election results with Mauro Leos, Associate Managing Director of Moody's Americas. Mauro walked us through Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's historic win, becoming the first left-wing president the country has had in decades. His win was by a landslide. He explained how Obrador found electoral success and why the energy sector is one area of concern. You look at what he has been saying. Uh, He mentioned last night when he uh, admitted he was being elected that 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 was going to be important in terms of avoiding a crisis. So the underlying message is that he expects that the markets will support him so that he will be able to push for his agenda that is basically focused on social programs. We saw President Trump congratulating him in a tweet today and saying he looked forward to working with him and that they could uh, work together. In your view, is that a realistic prospect? Well, that's an interesting question. I think that when it comes to President Trump, you know, he's going to have to deal with someone that is completely different, not only in terms of the political spectrum, but in terms of his personality. In a way, Lopez Obrador is similar to Trump in the way in which he carries himself. Uh, in the way in terms of the messages that he have. So there may be some points in which they uh, uh, coincide, but it remains to be seen because he's clearly coming from the left side while Trump is coming from the right side. So it's gonna be interesting how this is going to develop. I want to talk a little bit about the spending policies that he mentioned. You have an A3 rating on the country's debt with a stable outlook, uh, though he wants to increase some spending, of course, without necessarily raising taxes. How much more debt can the country sustain to keep an A3 with a stable outlook? Well, what we have seen during the last three years is that debt to GDP has been declining. The outgoing administration was quite conservative on the fiscal front. They reduced the deficit, and as a result of that, the debt to GDP has declined to about 35 37%, which is more or less in line with what we see in peers at uh, that level. So there's some room for the next administration, but not that much. And as you said, a big question is you know, how they're going to manage fiscal policy, because on the one hand, he spoke about the fact that they intend to increase, as I said, social uh, spending, mm-hmm. infrastructure as well. 
but he did mention that he does not plan to increase taxes mm -hmm. or to increase borrowing. So it's a big question mark as to how they're going to fill the gap there. Well, how plausible is his idea that he can reduce corruption, reduce graft to pay for everything that he wants to pursue? Well, that's what he has been saying, but it, it is difficult for us to see the connection between a reduction in corruption, which he may achieve, and how that will translate in increased revenues for the government. Has it been done before? Well, it depends on how you measure that. If you look at this administration, and if you look at the indicators of corruption at the beginning and at the end, clearly that has gone in the opposite direction. But then, even if he's able to reduce corruption, then the question is if that will lead to higher revenues, which is how he will expect to pay for the increased spending. One of the central points of tension between the U.S. and Mexico, or at least this administration and Mexico, has been uh, the feeling on the part of this administration that the uh, government in Mexico hasn't done enough to help stem the migrant tide from Central America to the U.S. And, of course, this potentially plays into the NAFTA debates and other areas in which uh, the U.S. Um, negotiates with Mexico. Do you expect to see a change of policy on that front or a different approach under this administration? It is interesting what you mentioned, Joe, because last night, once again, uh, when uh, Lopez Obrador was speaking, he spoke about that, but he put it in a different context. He basically said that the economy has to grow so that there's employment for Mexicans, and so they can stay in Mexico and don't try to find a better life mm. somewhere else. So in a way, indirectly, he's saying that, you know, he's, he wants to reduce migration, but not by means of, you know, putting a wall or, or right. by right. those measures, but by promoting domestic growth. One of the big initiatives I think that investors were initially concerned about is they wanted to roll back the opening up of the energy sector. Uh, how nervous are you about some of those reforms to halt the opening up of, of the energy sector? The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We do have concerns or questions about uh, Lopez Obrador views when it comes to the energy, the oil sector. Uh, not so much for the reform, because it would be, it's really difficult in the case of Mexico to undo a structural uh, constitutional reform, even though he may have a majority in both houses of Congress. Our concern has to do more with, uh, for instance, he's saying that he's going to uh, review, so there's going to be an audit of all the contracts that have been assigned. What would be the impact of that on investment, and particularly uh, future investment? He also has been saying that he plans to freeze gasoline prices, domestic gasoline prices, which would hurt Pemex and all other companies that are getting involved in terms of gasoline distribution. So I think that the energy sector is one of the areas where we have concerns and where the risks may be. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up, Taylor, because Emil has delivered a lot of fiery rhetoric, certainly when you're talking about liberalizing or rolling back the liberalization of the energy sector. But he's also promised to govern as a pragmatist. Mm. Do you buy that? Do you, do you think that he will actually execute on that, governing as a pragmatist, when it comes down to it? Well, we know that he was a pragmatist when it came to his campaign. And by that, I mean he brought everyone into his campaign, people from the right, from the left, from the middle, uh, religious groups. So he was open to everyone. Uh, when, we, when you 
listen to his uh, uh, speech when it comes to economics, he has a very clear view of what that should be, and that involves an increased role of the state, of the government. So in principle, it would appear to me that he's not that pragmatic, but then you have to distinguish between what he said in campaign and what he will be doing uh, as a president. Last nice message was more conciliatory when it comes to the private sector, and he said that he would respect the economic rights. So that's up to see. The, the far end, the sort of tail risk scenario when people hear oh, a leftist politician, of course, they worry, is like, is there a Hugo Chavez scenario in the cards where power becomes centralized, the leader becomes an autocrat, and the economy through for various reasons, uh, just completely goes into a tailspin. Based on sort of what you know about his approach, his philosophy, would you say this is a pretty far-fetched scenario for Mexico? If, if the reference is Hugo Chavez, yes, he's far from that. He's far from being like the Kirchner's right. in Argentina. Uh, why? Mexico is extremely interconnected with the world economy in general, and particularly with the U.S. economy. And López Obrador is aware that, you know, that plays a very important role. And if we go back to the need to promote economic stability, I think that that's going to be part of the game. So uh, the rules will change in terms of there's uh, an element of discontinuity, but not to an extent similar to what we have seen in other countries. Now, the problem is that this is something different from Mexico. So we're all trying to understand how things are going to work now that none of the two major parties is going to be in charge. And we spoke with Tom Lee, managing partner and the head of research at Fundstrat Global Advisors. He came on to discuss why he thinks markets are overreacting to all the tariff headlines. And we got his latest outlook on cryptocurrency. I just think that the White House has gone from being sort of a tailwind because we had tax cuts and deregulation and business confidence, which was sort of the story of last year more towards trying to fix global imbalances, which involves, you know, significant political risk. And so I think that uncertainty is rattled markets. So what is the tailwind now? Mm-hmm. We don't have another tax cut appear in the cards. Uh, it doesn't, there's no obvious global growth catalyst. What, 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 uh, what's the bull case for stocks from here? Well, I think, um, you know, the the global economy is fine. So one thing we have to keep in mind is there's still a huge amount of global savings flow, right? Let's, by OECD measures, I think 20% of GDP is savings flow, and that's getting recycled in the economy. So unless we have a leverage issue, there's just a lot of fuel here to continue to both grow the economy and help the equity markets. Um, I do think the bright spot continues to be the U.S., and I think that's one reason why, if you look at the last two weeks, U.S. equities, sector by sector, have actually been the place to be as these trade tensions have actually elevated. So I, I think you know we should probably not be so concerned with the yield curve and may think, look, the U.S. risk-reward is better because if, if we are successful in getting some concessions, it's good for stocks. What do you mean when you say uh, U.S. equities sector by sector? Well, meaning um, if you look at industrials, U.S. industrials have outperformed global industrials. So Uh I think what you're better off doing is just, you know, thinking of this regionally and and Mm. overweighting U.S. Given the U.S. economic backdrop, is the timing for this trade conflict or for the White House to ratchet up these trade issues and try to reshape global trade flows 
good or bad. I mean, tariffs and protectionist measures may slow things down, but is that a better thing to do when the economy is doing so well? Um, well, you know, I guess I, I don't know if there's ever a good time to bring up tariffs and um, trade issues. Um, but this is something that the president campaigned on, and he was determined to do one way or another. Yeah, and so it's, that's right. And it's going to be a difficult time because there's Brexit as well um, on the horizon. But, you know, tariffs... Look, I, I think there are global imbalances that need to be addressed, and so I guess there's never a great time to do it. But again, I uh, I think it would be great if we get you know some rebalancing, but it, we don't know. All right, let's talk about more. Let's talk more about some of those sectors because uh, tech is always that's still for many active managers the big question about whether they get tech right because if you've been long tech or overweight tech in recent years you've done phenomenally and if you haven't you've underperformed where do you is there still more upside in tech in your view uh yeah i mean outperformance i should say yeah i think i think in general tech's share of the s p should be growing you know it's about 20 percent of the market cap today where should it be well tech's got a couple tailwinds one is it's absorbing more of global GDP, which means its weight should be growing. And I think natural areas we're going to see this extension into is, is financial services and, and health care. But the other tailwind is that there is a, a labor shortage in a lot of developed markets. And you can't meet production without substituting labor shortage, which is more technology capital. So I think tech, you know, we think will be close to 40 percent of the S&P within a decade. What's it at now? It's around 20, so it should double oh. its its weight. At the expense of who or what? Uh, well, I think the two biggies are going to be, you know, financial and healthcare are close to f- another 40. I think tech and healthcare's combined weight, I'm sorry, financials and healthcare's combined weight should shrink from 40. So maybe, you know, maybe 10% comes out of that, and then 10% is really tech substituting labor. Within tech, uh, you make the case that semiconductors should be an area that investors look at, especially because of the weakness over the last two weeks in which people were kind of getting rid of sectors or companies that were more vulnerable to the trade discussions uh, because they rely so much on Chinese imports. Um, Talk a little bit about how much exposure investors should add to tech names, semiconductor names specifically. Well, um, I'd just like to start a little broader. I think that... Any group that's been sold hard on trade tensions is a group that people should consider buying on weakness. Um, and uh, you know, and, and I think when I think of tech, I you know I think there's both a Fang story and you you know Fang. We didn't really get Fang right because we're not recommending Fang this year, but they've done great. But we've been recommending all other tech, which okay. is really more traditional technology. And I think semis, you know, it's like, it's at the end of the day, it's like a raw material sector. It's it structurally looks a lot, you know, healthier than it has in the past. And I think we've seen this now. Many groups are starting to re-rate. So I think, you know, that's one of the groups. Uh, Tom, you've been known for being a huge cryptocurrency bull and had some pretty massive uh, price targets on Bitcoin. The selling in Bitcoin has been pretty relentless. Every time it looks like it's about to rally, it's being uh, slapped down. In retrospect, was it? What would you say, or why hasn't your thesis played out yet? Um, and well, you know, we're only mid-year, so sure. you know, it's um, so we're six months in the year. But I think a few things have really hurt cryptocurrencies this year. One is 
the group did have a parabolic move last year, so we're consolidating a lot of those gains. Because, you know, on a year-over-year basis, I think Bitcoin is still almost a triple. Or more Since than, the more same than time last year, yes. right. The second is regulatory... Uncer- like regulatory backdrop has been unimportant last year, and because crypto's gotten large enough, it, it's now become central, and there's still some regulatory uncertainty. So I think it's limited the ability of new money to come in at a time when there's still a lot of actual supply. And I think the third factor is, you know, in the past, like let's say look at 2017, there was low volatility everywhere. So... Incrementally, financial markets were seeking vol, were buying cryptocurrencies because that's a place to get volatility. This year, there's volatility everywhere, so you're not necessarily getting a lot of crossover investing into crypto. What's the correlation uh, between cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin with not just other sectors, but other asset classes or other typical drivers of financial markets? Um, so we, when we track rolling correlations, um, and we publish this, actually, so it's available uh, every week. Um, the correlations for Bitcoin to like the S&P or the bond market or gold are actually still quite low, but we are seeing some changes in the relationship. So one of the changes is Bitcoin has gone from being negatively correlated to bonds to positively correlated this year. So there's been a flip there. Um, it's still uncorrelated to equities largely, but it's picked up its correlation to gold. And I think one of the things that is probably a headwind this year is uh, what's happening with the dollar. So I think stronger dollar is, is not supportive. And that's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our daily market close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.